fathers and sons. Now there's a complicated thing. Jesus begins with these words. There was a certain man who had two sons. And when he starts his story, I have to believe that everyone leans in to listen to what he's going to say. There was a father who had two sons. Everybody knew how that can go. Luke gives us the detail that they were eating when Jesus told this story. So I want you to imagine a courtyard of sorts in which there are tables, where a place where people can come and eat and others can come and go. And there is Jesus and he's eating with a certain set of people. Luke specifies it and says that they are tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and ne'er-do-wells. And on the outside in the perimeter of this courtyard stand the, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes. And uh, I'm taking a little poetic license here in suggesting that they were leaning against the wall with their arms folded, watching Jesus in this major infraction of the Jewish law in having to do with these people, these tax collectors and prostitutes. And the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling and mumbling about this and casting looks at one another. This fellow who welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so in response to the Pharisees' critique, Jesus tells three stories. The first story is about a lost sheep. The second story is about a lost coin. And then finally he tells them this one that we're looking at this morning. And he simply begins with the words, there was a father who had two sons. Now all the Pharisees and the scribes who were on the outside of the courtyard knew the Torah and they knew it by heart. And I'm sure that the diners who were sitting at the table had previously heard stories like the one that Jesus was telling. And it would have conjured up images of other stories about other fathers and sons that they knew. They would have thought about Abraham, who had Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac, who had Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, who had a bunch, but who liked Joseph and Benjamin the best. They would have thought about all the fathers and sons from biblical history and remembered how messed up all those families were. As Will Willimon, a bishop in the Methodist Church, reminds us, he says, If you want to find a functional family, don't look at the Old Testament. After all, it all begins with Adam, who had two sons, Cain and Abel. And we know how that turned out. 
So when Jesus says there was a father who had two sons, everybody thinks to themselves, both the diners and the Pharisees, think to themselves, this ain't going to be pretty. I mean, starting a story like that is, is a bit like starting a story with the words, there was a dark and stormy night. You know at some point in the story you're going to find yourself saying, don't go into the basement. Don't open the door. The call's coming from inside the house. So when the younger son insults the father, wishes him dead, makes off with a cashier's check and a malicious grin, and walks away, everyone thinks, oh yeah. I saw that coming. We knew that wasn't going to be good. And when the good Jewish boy finds himself destitute and poor and feeding pigs, I'm quite sure that all the diners would have pushed their plates away and said, Oy vey. A Jewish boy feeding pigs. That's not kosher. And when the boy came to his senses and made the decision to go back to the house, to go back to his father, the Pharisees and the scribes sitting around the perimeter of the courtyard would have said, Go ahead, kid. Go ahead. Go ahead and go home. Because you know what you're going to find when you go home? The gates are going to be locked. The man of the house is going to pretend that he's not home and he won't answer the door. Go ahead, kid. Go ahead and go home. See if anybody will speak to you when you go back home. You insulted your father. You wished him dead. You won't get away with that. The Pharisees and the scribes knew that in their religious system, everything was done in an orderly fashion. In the Jewish system, it, it, it called for everybody following the same set of rules meticulously. Everyone in the Jewish system was called to be trustworthy and loyal and honest and fair and friendly and helpful and considerate and caring and courageous and strong and kind and obedient and cheerful and thrifty and brave and reverent. It relied on everybody being a good scout, on my duty to do my best. Everybody had to be a good Jew. And if you weren't a good Jew, you were out. 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 Like those tax collectors who took their money and gave it to their enemy, Rome. Out! Like the prostitute who would always be considered unclean. Out! Like the leper whom you would choose to avoid like the plague. Out! Like the blind and the mute and the lame whose parents had or whose grandparents had obviously somehow offended God and resulted in this 
mutated form of humanity out. Out. So go ahead, kid. Try to go back home. The Pharisees and scribes would have exchanged knowing looks around the room. They knew how this story was going to end. And the ones sitting around the table would have exchanged looks too. The hooker would have looked at the tax collector. And the tax collector would have looked at the pimp. And the pimp would have stared down into his plate. And the boy born without an arm would have sought to hide his face. And those diners would have thought to themselves, Oh, kid, don't go back home. For you see, the diners knew all about this. They would have known what it's like to walk up and find the gates locked. They would have known what it's like for the master of the house to pretend like he's not home and have the father turn his face away. They would have known those diners there on that day when Jesus told this parable what it's like to go to the marketplace and have your cousins act like they don't know who you are. They would have known what it is like to have younger siblings that you'd never met or to have grandparents that you'll never meet again. They would have thought to themselves, Oh, kid, don't go back home. Please, 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 don't go back home. Don't do it. And Jesus continues the story and he says, And so the sun sets off. And when he was a long way off, Jesus said, The father saw him. And the father was filled with compassion. And he ran to his younger son. And he embraced him. And he kissed him. And the son, I have to believe, kneeling prostrate before his father said, I am no longer father to be called your son. But the father interrupted him and said quickly to his servants, Quickly, get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and new sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate. Because this son of mine was dead, but is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. And they began to celebrate. They had a party. Jesus loved parties. I'm sure that when Jesus got to this point in the story and said that they began to celebrate, that shock registered on everybody's faces. The Pharisees and the scribes would have been shocked because of the absence of Jewish standards. This boy should have never been forgiven. He'd wished his father dead. There's no way that he should be brought back and celebrated. The diners around the table would have been shocked because they had never seen anything like this in their lives thus far. The Pharisees and the scribes would have thought to themselves, celebrate? Are you kidding me? This is a violation of the law. And the diners would have said, celebrate? Are you kidding me? 
seen anything like it. Disbelief in the eyes of the taxman. The boy born without an arm struggled to wipe the tears from his eyes. But the story is not yet finished. So the Pharisees hold their rage because the story might yet turn out all right. And the diners around the table hold their breath because everything could still possibly turn out all wrong. And sure enough, here it comes. The older brother enters stage left. And he finds out that there's a party going on inside for his brother who has shamed his father and has come back home and father has put a robe and sandals and ring on his finger and has killed the fattened calf and there's a celebration. And so what does the elder brother do? He stands out on the porch. He refuses to go into the party. He says to his father, I have slaved for you all of these years. I've never complained about it. I've done my service to you. I've slaved for you, and I've never even been given a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. I've slaved for you, Dad. Are you kidding me? You treat him like royalty, and you treat me like trash. Are you kidding me? But the father's not yet done. And he pleads with his son, you know that I've always been with you? And everything I have is already yours. We have to celebrate because this brother of yours, he, he's come back home. He was dead to me. But he's alive again. He was lost to me. But now he's found. We have to celebrate. And that's how the parable ends. Are you kidding me? It stops right there. That's not how a story is supposed to end. A good story is supposed to end, and so they live together happily ever after, right? But we don't know the ending of the story. And I think that Jesus makes a strong point by leaving the ending absent. We don't know whether or not the older brother went into the party. We would hope that he did, but we don't know. We don't know if the Pharisees standing around the perimeter of the courtyard finally saw the light and finally said, Oh, I don't know how I could have been so stupid. Yes, of course we need to celebrate the fact that, that these sinners and these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these lepers are all coming to find this coming kingdom of Jesus, the Messiah. We don't know if they did that or not. 
And not knowing was the whole point of this, these three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. I prefer to call it the story of two lost sons because it wasn't just one lost son. Both sons were lost. One was open in their lostness. One was secretive about their lostness. And the point of these stories was all to say, to send a message to the Pharisees, the religious elite, was to ask them, well, so what are you going to do? Are you going to join the party? It's pretty simple, folks. I mean, this is not like trying to solve the, the Sunday crossword puzzle in the New York Times. The point that Jesus is making here is very straightforward. The whole point is to say to the Pharisees, the religious structure, are you going to join the party? And we don't know how it's going to turn out. And frankly, I don't like that. And neither do you. Because we like to know how things are going to turn out. We are people who pride ourselves on doing everything decently and in order. We are the good kids. We here in this room. We're the good scouts. We're cheerful and brave and loyal and trustworthy. We're the people who show up every time the church doors are open. We're the good kids. And we know what it's like to live with kids who aren't good. And we wish they would beat it. Because they just mess up our lives. We know what it's like to sit on a committee that meets month after month after month after month after month only to find those who show up at church once in a while to complain about what our committee decided. We know what it's like to wrestle with the tough issues, the naughty questions and problems. We know what it's like to sacrifice personal time for the sake of the church. We know what it's like to give over and above our tithe. We know what it's like to work in the nursery on Christmas Eve when nobody else will volunteer. We know what it's like to teach the Sunday school class of fifth grade boys that nobody else wants to teach. We know what it's like to be the first one here on Sunday morning and the last one to leave on Sunday night only to have somebody come up to us and complain and say, boy, I wish they would improve things around here. We know what it's like. We get the older brother. We good kids, we good scouts, we get the older brother. Because some of us have doing this, been doing this gig for years. For years, you've been the ones who volunteered in the nursery. For years, you've been the ones who served as an elder or a ministry team leader when nobody else. For years, you've been the one who's been willing to organize the vacation Bible school each summer. For years, you've been the one who's led the missions trip and gave up of your own personal vacation. For years, all of these years, you've been doing this. I've been slaving all of these years. Are you kidding me, God? And if we're honest with ourselves, we not only get the older brother, we understand his resentment and his anger. 
and we understand his desire to stay on the porch and not join the party. When that young couple who only shows up at Christmas and Easter wants their newborn baby to be dedicated, and they want to do it on a Sunday when nobody else is having their children dedicated, and they want a particular song sung by the choir, and they want a particular pastor to do the dedication, and they're very demanding about the whole thing, we understand what it feels like to stand on the porch and not want to go in. We understand when the congregation's resident critic, the one who never checks his mailbox, the one who never reads his bulletin, never checks his his newsletter, the one that you can count on to send at least one snarky email every month to complain about something that's not according to his liking, when that guy stands up at the annual congregational meeting and says that he's going to donate $5,000 for an outreach program so that everybody can invite their unchurched friends and everybody breaks out into applause, we understand the reluctance to step back and say, I'm not going in. We get the older brother. We get it. We get it. And I believe we know how the parable ends. Because this parable is not about the younger brother. And it's not about the older brother. This parable is about a God who lavishes grace on all who are undeserving of it. And if you doubt my opinion on that, and you don't have to agree, I want you to be a good Berean and and think this through, but if you doubt my opinion, I would commend to you the book of Dr. Tim Keller, who just published a book called, a fascinating title, The Prodigal God. The Prodigal God in which he speaks about this lavish love and mercy of God. You see, this parable is all about a loving father. Do you honestly think that that father would have left his older son out on the porch? Do you honestly think that there's any way that the son could have resisted the loving call of his father to join the party? We know how this parable ends. I want to believe in my heart the older son comes into the party, empties himself of arrogance and pride and self righteousness, sees the light and comes in, and experiences the grace of God not only for his brother but for himself too. And understands that the love of the Father applies to him as well. And that the celebration that's going on inside is not just for the younger brother, the one who openly sinned, but the celebration really is for the older brother as well. The Father says, 
Our Father, our Father, says to us today, whether we're younger brothers or older brothers, he says, I love you with a love that is so wide and so high and so deep that you will never be able to comprehend it. What made you think, says the Father, what made you think that by doing things for me, that that would replace having a relationship with me? Who taught you, says the Father, that busyness was a spiritual virtue? And our Father says to us, even as in a moment we take a morsel of bread and a cup of juice, our Father says to us, younger and older alike, come to the party. I don't need any more slaves. I'm looking for children. And any time that we think that something more needs to be done or that we need to do something to add on to what Christ has done at Calvary, we're missing out because everything that needed to be done has been done, period. And Jesus the storyteller becomes Jesus the Savior and coming King. And it is in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ Everything that needed to be done is done, and praise God, we don't need to do anything else. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's a celebration. So you don't have to attend another committee meeting. I hope you will. <laughs> You don't have to teach that nest full of fifth grade rest, those restless boys. But I hope you will. You don't need to pray another prayer, add another dollar to the plate. None of those things will enhance the wonderful gift that's already been given the gift of eternal life and the abundant life that is ours in Jesus. And going to committee meetings and giving a dollar in the plate and teaching the fifth grade boys class and all the rest is our way of saying thank you to Jesus for doing everything that needed to be done. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the abundant life that is mine in Jesus. And we come to this understanding again and afresh through this teaching of Jesus. <laughs> I, this study of the parables has been so fascinating to me because it has reminded me all over again about the richness of God's grace. And that the Father's grace is enough. It is enough. And yet today, by His gracious Spirit, the Spirit of God is inviting people to be a part of a party. And the invitation is open to everyone. 
The invitation is extended to you, brother and sister, whether you're a younger brother or sister or an elder brother or sister. You might be living in open sin, therefore you're the younger brother or sister. Or you might be very secretive about your sin, like the elder brother. But all, elder and younger, are invited to this party. And all you need to do is come back home. But you must come empty-handed. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Will you say yes? Will you say 